I'm Jessica Randolph, and welcome to the How to Buy a House podcast, where we empower you to invest in real estate and start building wealth for yourself. It's the biggest purchase of your life, and we're going to teach you how to do it right. Your host, Jessica Randolph, is an HGTV designer, a top realtor for over 10 years, winner of the National Association of Realtors 30 Under 30 Award, Rookie of the Year, number 11 realtor on social media in Tennessee, and most importantly, the founder of the How to Buy a House class. Jessica, take it away. How's it going, y'all? Welcome to the podcast today. I am so excited that you're listening to this. Today's episode is jam-packed with some really great information, and I can't wait for you to hear from our special guests. We have got Josh O'Connell and Grant Verlindi from Denver, Colorado with us today. Josh and Grant have been longtime best friends and have been realtors together for over seven years, and they founded the OV Group. They're some of the best realtors in the Denver area, and they sell anywhere from a $200,000 home to a $5 million home. But that's not really what they focus on. They focus on giving expert level advice and insight to all of their clients. And if there was a client satisfaction award out there, they would win it. Grant and Josh are amazing guys. I am obsessed with them and I cannot wait for you to learn from them today. So without further ado, let's get into it. What's going on, guys? How are you? Fabulous. Doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Is it snowy out in Colorado today? It was this morning when I went to the gym, it was literally snowing. So yeah, we're staring out the window at the mountains and snow on the ground right now. So, oh, I'm so jelly. We're like, I mean, it's gray, but we have no snow, but it was like 65 degrees all last week, which is nice. So it's pretty out here, but I, I must say I'm kind of sick of the snow this much through January. We've gotten like the last couple of years haven't been too snowy until like February, March, but this year we've been hit pretty hard earlier in the year, which seems like a normal winter, but if it goes until April, May, which it has seemed to, then uh, yeah, I'm I'm ready to be golfing at that time. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. I love that. I was just in Colorado and I remember I was texting you guys for um, advice and went skiing and there was like fresh powder everywhere. And it was like one of my favorite skiing experiences. Nice. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And we actually like got my son on skis too, and he's five. And like he got on and was started to ski, and I was like, yes! So hopefully we'll do more trips out to Colorado. I remember that forever. Yeah, yeah, it was really special. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll have to go skiing when you guys are out here next time. Yeah, that would be that would be amazing. We should definitely do that. Um, Well, I'm so excited to have you guys a part of the podcast today. Um, For those of you that are listening, we've got um, our Denver teachers on the call today, and they're absolutely incredible. And um, Josh Grant, I would love for you guys to just kind of. Tell the listener, like, who are you guys? Why are you working together? Why'd you guys get into real estate? Maybe give us a little snippet about each of you personally or, you know, real estate related. And then um, we'll talk more about today's topic, which today's topic is how do I get my offer accepted in a multiple offer situation? And for those of you listening, you might know what a multiple offer situation is. Maybe some of you don't. I'll just tell you. It's when there are multiple offers on a property. There are multiple buyers who have put in a bid to try and get it accepted by the seller. And it can be very exhausting, especially if it is something that's happening a lot. We saw a lot of this last year in 2022 and some of 2021 of just, you know, 30 people interested in one of the exact same house or 30 people interested in one house. And how do you guarantee that you're the offer that that seller picks? So we're gonna talk about that because we're seeing a little bit more of that starting to happen at the beginning of this year, which is 2023. And we'd really love to help you guys navigate that. So, but before we do, Grant, Josh, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Yeah, I can kind of start with where we came from. Josh and I, we went to high school together here in the Denver area. We both played golf together there and we're part of the same friend group as well. And both Josh and I, when we were like 15, 16 years old, we had a taste for real estate. Uh, We knew it was something we kind of wanted to do even at that young age. But then fast forward a couple years, uh, we ended up rooming together in college. uh, No way. Collins, yep. (laughs) Full circle. Yeah, full circle. Uh, We, I mean, we've lived together for three years up there. And so we got to know each other really well. And real estate was still top of mind for us then. So we actually started studying for our exam our same day, sophomore year of college in our apartment. Um, We started classes that day. And uh, at the time, we both had different mentors. Uh, Mine was with Caldwell Banker. Josh's was with Keller Williams. And uh, so once we kind of graduated, we both went our separate ways trying to do it, but always had this thought in the back of our mind that 
we wanted to partner up. And about two and a half years ago, that opportunity presented itself for us. And uh, we've been together ever since now. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's full circle. I think what makes it fun for us is like, there's definitely an aspect of, you know, friendship and fun when it comes to like our, our real estate dealings. Um, and then just understanding each other so well to the point where we know each other's weaknesses and each other's strengths so that we can kind of play off of that to create success for ourselves and our clients. So it's, it's been fun to build the OV group and like mm-hmm. our immediate close friend group and family in Denver has been super supportive of that, which is fun to see it come from both sides. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of a unique situation, but we've enjoyed it. I think that's super interesting that you guys went from being like high school besties to roommates to business partners. I would imagine that a lot of people do the first two and they're like, I don't even want to be friends with you anymore. <laughs> yeah, like after sure. I see that you don't clean up your pan of mac and cheese <laughs> yeah. and you know, like the way you do your laundry, like we just can't do this anymore. But you guys are like, no, like actually you're still great and let's do business together. Yeah, I think yeah. that says a lot about you guys and your the connection you guys have. I think it's really beautiful and really cool. Yeah, and- for sure. It's, it's rare. I think we got a lot of each other in college, but like that I think is a test to how well we, I guess, just work together and get along and enjoy each other. We understand each other so well at this point that we know what makes each other tick. We know, uh, like Josh said, strengths and weaknesses. And I mean, if we made it through living together for three years and uh, I mean, I'm not sure if Josh thinks differently, but I'd say it went pretty well for three years, not really conflicts because we understand each other again, um, which is super important for us. because we know if Josh needs me for something, has questions that I might ex- like might might be my expertise, then he gives me a call. Vice versa, we're always leaning on each other, and uh, I think it makes us better for it. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think there's a trust there too, right? I mean, it's you know that you've got each other's backs, and I've had um, two different business partners, but both were like just super rooted and founded in trust, and it was so easy to just resolve any issues if they came up because I wanted my partner to succeed succeed just as much as I wanted to succeed and looking out for each other that way. So I think it's beautiful. And I think it's really amazing for those of you listening to this podcast. It's really a huge benefit to you if you do have a realtor that has a partner, because how many people know that one person is just one person, but two people are better than one and two brains are better than one and um, two different negotiating, negotiating tactics are better than one. And that's kind of what you get with the OV group in Denver. If you guys are listening and you're in Denver, definitely check out Josh and Grant. Um, they're incredible. And that's why we are trusting them with this class in Denver. You can go check out their how to buy house classes and uh, they're incredible. So let's dive into the market in Denver because obviously all I really know is that you guys have mountains and I like to ski. (laughs) That's really about it. But what is it like to actually live there and be in the market? Like, have you guys seen just like an uproar of people moving there post pandemic? I mean, what is the market like right now? Yeah, good question. So yeah, it's it's been a, a very a very uh, opportunistic market for the last couple of years in terms of appreciation and investment. Obviously, there's been a big influx of people moving into Denver, and I think we've seen that number start to slow down a little bit after COVID. So I believe in my heart of hearts, especially because I'm a native, that that's actually healthy. Um, we were seeing a lot of people come in. There wasn't the inventory to support that, which created such a a massive supply and demand issue that caused a lot of last year's, you know, multiple offer situation, which we'll get into later. But um, currently speaking up to date, um, I think it's it's much more of a healthier market than we see in the last couple of years, just in terms of supply and demand. As interest rates started to creep up last year, a lot of buyers got out of the game. And I think that like the benchmark of that reversal was this weekend, as people have had like two, two and a half months of constant rates Buyers are starting to get more comfortable. They're getting back in the game. And we're starting to see a lot more properties with multiple offers in the first weekend. That said, there's definitely still opportunity out there to go find a property that's been either mispriced or misrepresented a little bit and go negotiate some seller concessions so that you can get a decent rate. But there's opportunity in every price point. And I think that we'll start to see a little bit of an uptick in inventory in the next month month and a half as well. So we'll start to see a little bit more of a balanced playing field, but it's certainly still uh, a seller's, quote unquote, seller's market out there right now. Wow. That's really interesting because we're we're definitely still in a buyer's market right now in Nashville. Like it was like 180 from like January to August. If you were a buyer, like you had to decide, like, are you going to give up $100,000 on top yeah. of what you're asking or are you going to give up like your right leg because that's right. what you're going to get a house, <laughs> which we'll talk about today. 
And then it was like overnight, it flip-flopped and we had listings sitting there and sitting there and some are still sitting there. And the great thing is that if you are a buyer and it is a buyer's market, that means things are in your favor. You can actually get a better deal on something. But when you do have low supply and high demand, you do get into what we call like a multiple offer situation very often. And it's a lot more common. And especially in a place like Denver, where so many people now are working remotely and they're like, I want to live near the mountains. I love to hike. I love to cycle or whatever they like to do. And they're going to go move to the place that they've always dreamed of living because they can work from home and work from wherever. So you guys definitely, I think you'll probably be one of the cities very quickly that is in multiple offer situations over other cities. I think that there's a lot of... uh uniqueness to the Denver market just because of the diversity of like the Denver economy too. So like there's a lot of talks about there about tech recession and whatnot that that creeps into buyers' minds, especially well-educated buyers. And in Denver, so much of that is just so secure, like job security, just because of the diversity of the economy. So we see a lot of health long-term that way. So I think that in terms of the market in a broader sense and like in comparing it to other um markets across the country, it's it's just going to continue to be healthy and, and a good place to buy. And I think people understand that. So mm-hmm. yeah, we saw that turnaround happen so fast once we got out of the holidays and into the new year that it was just like that slump went away and we're right back into it. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. I think it's kind of like having waterfront property, like you guys being so close to the mountains and being so centrally located. I think buying in Denver is just a really smart investment. Even if you do feel like, oh, I missed the boat I should have bought four years ago or 10 years ago, you could really say that about any city. And especially in a place like Denver, I think you're you're buying in a, a city that I believe will just continue to grow because of its location alone. Yeah. Yeah. No question. Yeah. I think... You know, that's kind of what's been really cool about being in Nashville is there is such a draw of it being Music City and being the hub of the music industry for the universe. And there's always that draw, but we don't have the ocean or mountains or really anything cool besides (laughs) the events that we have and the people that we have here. And our food scene's gotten really great. But I think that is the beauty of like, even like talking to our um, Bozeman teacher a couple weeks ago, like they've had a huge amount of people move there because it's just such a beautiful place to live. And so you really yeah, are yeah, yeah, you're getting prime rib real estate. It's like like That's you're getting right. some of <laughs> yeah. the best of the best. So I think it's smart, like wherever you are, even if you do feel like you're overpaying a little bit, I think if you're if you're really smart and kind of planning on using that investment um, over time to gradually appreciate, I really don't think you can go wrong just from the location alone. In yeah. yeah. Don't sell your city short either though. It's yeah. it's awesome out there. I won't. I mean, it is awesome, but yeah, I'm I'm very jealous of, of Denver. Like, I always tell Josh, I'm like, when we retire, like, let's go move to, to Boulder or go move to yeah, Colorado or somewhere like that. <laughs> we'll see you out here. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Okay, so let's talk about this. So perfect segue. I, let's say you are one of the many people who are like, yes, I want to live in Colorado. I want to do all those outdoorsy things. I want to invest in that market. It is sometimes a doggy dog market when there are a lot of people that feel that same way. And that's where we call, it becomes a seller's market because there are a lot of buyers out to play. And so the seller's like, oh, I can just sit back and not replace my roof or you know, not do any interior updates because I am gonna be able to sell it without doing anything. And especially last year, we saw that there were so many people buying because interest rates were astronomically low. or 3% interest rate for those listening, that is not normal. That is like very amazing cherry on top, whipped cream, the whole nine yards. Where we're at now in the six, six and a half percent, that's actually very average and still historically pretty low compared to what our parents paid or their parents. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to like knowing what you're buying and knowing if you're getting a good investment and being smart with it. And you can always refinance later. So um, (laughs) when it comes to your purchase price, you really only get one chance to get the right price. And that's hard to do when you're in a multiple offer situation. And Josh, I would love for you to kind of tell tell our, our audience what happened to you this weekend, because this is the perfect example of what a multiple offer situation can look like. So maybe if you want to share, you don't have to give details or exact numbers if you don't want to, but share yes. as much as you feel comfortable with. Yeah, for sure. So we were uh, out, out and about with some buyers this weekend. One unique thing about Grant and myself is that we, um, I think we're so rooted into like the Denver market just because we're natives. So we've like known these neighborhoods for our whole lives. We've known these agents for a long, long time. So what we strive to do is try to create product for our buyers. And in this case, we actually found uh, a listing for our buyers that was coming to the market, wasn't on the market yet. So like we were the first ones to know about it. So going from, you know, it's still January, it's still kind of a slumpy market. We're kind of getting out of that. Um, Your expectation uh, is that 
when you have a buyer, this is a higher price point that it's going to be pretty smooth. Like you might be able to negotiate some stuff from the seller, um, but at a higher price point, you don't expect there to be 15 to 20 showings through a weekend. And so I'm kind of, I'll kind of start from the beginning where we got in the house on Thursday, knowing we were the very first ones in the house, knowing that uh, nobody really knew about the listing until it was going to hit the market, you know, the day that we were seeing it and that we were able to get our ducks in a row before anybody else. But in reality, we weren't really expecting to have to do that because of the price point and uh, just where the market has been. Um, so fast forward to the weekend, we find out that there's 15 showings throughout the weekend on a two plus million dollar home. And that's when we really look at each other and I sit down with my buyers and say, okay, um, it looks like we're probably going to get some competition on this one. Let's talk about what a multiple offer situation looks like. Uh, and so when I go over that with my buyers, I use the menu example. Um, so pretend you have a menu in front of you and there's all sorts of entrees and appetizers in front of it. And each one is a different tool that you can use uh, to make your offer look stronger to a seller. Um, one of them is price, obviously. Um, the other one is financing contingencies. So the appraisal, if you're offering over ask, are you offering an appraisal gap that guarantees that the seller um, will walk away with that amount of money, even if the appraisal comes in below the purchase price? Um, are your inspection terms um, easy on the seller, health and safety as is? There's a bunch of ways that you can play with that one. And then also your earnest money. So in Colorado, we're not an escrow state. So uh, the way that a transaction works is you submit your earnest money at the beginning of a transaction. That's your payment of good faith. And then that's rolled into your down payment when you close. So earnest money, locking in earnest money or increasing earnest money are two ways that you can play with that to make yourself look as strong as possible to a seller. Um, because essentially you're saying, if we were to terminate, um, you're still guaranteed a little bit of a chunk of money to walk away with. So it's, uh, there's a number of things that you can play with. And on this one, we played with every single one. We went over a hundred grand over asking price. We filled it in with an appraisal gap. We actually waived all of our financing contingencies because we knew that their bank was going to be able to close the loan. And then we made all of our health and safety items or all of our inspection items, health and safety, meaning that we're not going to go in and, you know, ask a seller to repair a little bit of paint yeah, that might be miscolored, it. right? We're not going to nickel and dime them. We're only going to look at large health and safety issues that may be of concern. Uh, and then we just made sure that our timeline fit with everything that the seller requested, which was actually a 40-day close because they wanted some time to be able to get out of the house. So all that said, we hit everyone on the mark and we felt super, super strong about um, where we submitted. And we also didn't just submit blindly. The whole time I was reconning with this, the listing agent who um, I know well and asking anything that I could to try to dig up information about other offers. Um, so they ended up getting three total offers, which is crazy on a house listed above $2 million. Uh, especially like this time of year, that was the major thing that felt like, wow, this is crazy. We ended up unfortunately not getting the house out of my astonishment. I think because there comes to a point with your clients where you need to be their fiduciary and you need to tell them, hey, I understand that there are emotions involved with this purchase, but my job is to protect your finances at the same time and also mitigate risk for you. So we had a very honest conversation, my client and I, before we submitted the offer. And I always just like to help them come to the conclusion that we're submitting the best offer that we can while feeling okay that if we lose out on it, knowing that we put our best foot forward and we weren't willing to match those terms because that's just too much risk or too much money or whatever it is. So I like to make sure that we have those conversations before we're submitting anything um, because there are some crazy desperate buyers out there, especially for very specific product. And that just ended up being the case on this one. Somebody came in and essentially offered a price that I think my buyers and I would have said that's absolutely insane. And they also did some other terms that put them at such risk that I just like would not be able to have slept a day until we closed that contract. So that's an example, I think, of like where I call it the, the cream puff house, if you're a ninja person or a 10 out of 10 house, where there are buyers that are sitting on the sidelines waiting for that product to pop up. And when it does, you're going to be in a multiple offer situation and you're going to have to pull out every stop. In this scenario, we did. Someone was just a little bit more crazy and desperate than us. But um, that's a good example just to kind of understand the conversations that we have with our buyers as we're submitting those types of offers uh, and also the tools that we use to, uh, to try to show our buyers in their best light. For sure. And I would actually argue that you did everything right because yeah. what you don't want to do is like imagine if you would have gone back to your clients and been like, 
who cares what the comps say? You know, I know you got an extra 50 grand in your bank account. Let's just tack <laughs> yeah. it up the purchase price and yeah. guarantee a sale for me as the buyer's agent. Like I want to make that commission. That would have been the wrong thing to do. But what you did was you told your clients, this is, to me, this is the, our best offer based yeah. on the comps, mm -hmm. based on what the house is worth. I don't want you buying this cream puff. And the second you buy it, it's like you overpaid. And now when you go to sell it, we're like, well, that was a crazy market. It's not actually worth that. You just paid that just so you could be the buyer of that house. Correct. Exactly. I would argue like that's worse than you winning that would be worse than you being like, okay, we have to go back to the drawing board and go look at other houses. Correct. I would yeah, rather yeah. miss out on the cream puff and go get something that I can maybe turn into a cream puff later on and yeah, know that 100%. it's going to make baby cream puffs from the equity. So you don't want to be house poor, first of all, but you also don't want to spend way too much money on something if it's not worth it. Totally, 100%. Yeah, and a lot of people would say, oh, well, something's worth what someone's willing to pay for it, but you don't want to be a crazy person. You want to follow the advice of your realtor to say, yes, they listed it at 2.3. If you look at these other comps in the area, this is the most expensive thing in the neighborhood. And yeah, maybe it's got a couple bells and whistles, but you will be the highest comp and you just need to understand that risk if you go to sell. And there might be buyers that are like, I know I'm overpaying, but I, my best friend lives two houses down and it's worth it to me. Okay, then let's make that decision together. But your agent will walk you through kind of the risk and reward for making that kind of offer and what it could look like down the road for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's just the most important thing. Like when I touch space with my client afterward, obviously everybody is disappointed, but knowing that, you know, when they're like, I would not in my right mind have matched those terms, mm -hmm. you know, you did everything that you could, you know, you don't come out on top every single time. And I would argue that if you did, you probably aren't looking out for your client's best interest. So mm -hmm. just like what you said. So it's a tough one. I think it's fun to share the examples that don't end up like where you're the hero and you get the crazy house because that's where Grant and I learned the most. Like the minute that I found out I didn't get that contract, I texted Grant and I was like, hey, dude, first thing Monday morning, we're going over this scenario and we're going to learn from it and move on and just at least, you know, gain that knowledge from being in that experience. So everything's a win. Yeah, 100%. It's great, like, having being able to bounce that stuff off each other, too. Uh, we always have each other, like, review contracts before we submit and everything because we always have backup, right? We always got each other, and you get two for the price of one type thing, right? But we always want to support each other. And uh, if we're, like, entering a multiple offer situation or something like that, I know Josh and I both, we study the comps before we go to that place because um, we know if our buyers are super interested in it, we need to know where that peak is, right? Like if they want to get invested in that multiple offer situation, you need to look out for your client's best interest, right? Um, so I always have that number in my head that's like, I, the comps are telling me I would not go above this number. Um, and some people are gonna do what they want. If they want it, they want it. Um, but as long as we can communicate that risk to them, but we always bounce that off each other. Like, hey, do you think this number is a good number for this house or, uh, like just having two of us and being able to bounce those ideas off each other is uh, huge. It's one of our big value adds. Yeah. You don't go insane that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and I think that's the, that's also why it's so important to have a, a realtor that's like educated, not only on the market, but has relationships too with these other agents. Like, like you said, Josh, like if I'm analyzing what you did in your whole, the steps you took from Thursday to last night, like I would argue that you did everything right. And you were the first agent in that house with your buyers like you fought at the beginning to be like i'm gonna get you in this house before anybody even hears about it a incredible for your buyers they should be so proud to have you as their representative but then also just like bringing in your offer early coming in super strong reading the signs of maybe that listing agent gave you a hint that like yeah we've got a lot of interest we've got 15 showings and you going back to the drawing board and bringing that to your clients there are some agents out there that will just show a house and be like okay what do you want to offer and it's <laughs> yeah. due diligence of comps or trying to get them in early or asking that listing agent like who is the seller what's interesting to them what are they looking for on paper and which menu items can we pick from so that our dish is the most appetizing, right? And yeah, exactly. But I think this is a great example of like, even if you do everything right, it might not happen, right? And maybe if you were to come up in price, but I think what we would like to 
tell you as the listener is it's okay if your offer doesn't get accepted. The number one thing is making sure that you are putting your best foot forward. You have an agent that's doing all the prerequisites on the front end so that you are in the best position to make the best offer, but also not to do something that you're not comfortable doing and biting off more than you can chew price-wise or house-wise. Just because there's a lot of demand on it, it might not be the right house for you. I'm a firm believer that that means another house that's going to come along is actually the right one for you. 100%. Um, like, I believe that things are meant to be. And yes, there are some great houses that my clients have missed out on, but then we go and find another one and we're able to negotiate a little bit better. And they're so happy. You know, like, man, good thing we didn't buy that other house. And actually, like, this location's so much better. So I think, like, not to get discouraged, but to make sure that you do have expert advice on your side. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That's part of our job, too, I think, is helping the buyer to understand that, like, you know, it, it feels like a bummer at the time, um, but everything happens for a reason. And also, like, it doesn't help to get discouraged through the market. If you're feeling right about putting our best foot forward on everything, the right thing will come along. And I think just having, like, a timeline to help you understand that helps, too. So, yeah, it's fun to share the ones where, like, we could share a million where we won. And, like, you know, it's it sounds great. But, like, we did everything that we did where we won in the in the past. Mm-hmm. And so it's just kind of, like, using those tools and there's a lot more tools where you can get super creative. And uh, I even like learned some this in the past year where it's like agents in a super competitive situation are getting very creative. So over the past year, Grant and I have definitely had to like refine our skills as to like, what do these menu items look like? And how can we make them even more creative? Um, And this one was one where we like literally did it all and and didn't get there. So it's it's a fun story because I don't know, I think you learn more when you fail. Um, But uh, it was a great experience. Yeah. And I think some people listening, they might be like, well, what could have you done, right? Like what would have been the thing that tipped the needle further? Um, and I think it could have been a couple different things, but um, if you would have obviously given them a higher price, what I've seen in the past, some people do. And in some states, this is legal, some it's not. So take this with a grain of salt. But some people will say, hey, I'll give you $5,000 just to review our offer. Yeah. Just as like a seller bonus. Like we're just going to give you that money. There's also some shady stuff that, you know, people used to do also of like writing the sellers a personal letter and attaching that to the offer. That's really like up to the buyer's discretion as agents. Like we're not supposed to advise you to do that because we don't want the seller to discriminate towards anybody. Right. But it is, you know, that was a tactic that was used a lot last year of like, let's pull on their heartstrings because maybe their grandma died and that's why they're selling this house and it's an emotional sale for them and kind of doing that kind of thing. The most creative thing we did once was I had this client who was like, he cracked me up, like funniest guy ever. And he's like, you know what I would do if I were a seller? I would want somebody to buy me pizza. Like if you take her offer, I'm going to buy you pizza of your choice, send it to your house tonight if you take our offer. And so I wrote that in our yeah, special situation and we got the is. house. Yeah, and I know that. that sounds crazy, but they were like, this person is so desperate. They're willing to buy me pizza tonight. Let's it. do it. it. It's like, that's what kind of beer one. do you want? Yeah, that's a great deliver one. It at closing yeah, we had a beer thing. one last year. And then actually uh, we had, this was a bummer one. We also lost on this one. This was like two years ago. This is crazy. But we had an artist who was buying a house in a very like artistic neighborhood in Denver and they drew a picture of the house like hand hand stenciled a picture of the house and submitted it with our offer which was another offer that was mind-blowingly strong and we lost out on that one like oh my gosh it's insane yeah wow well that's like to me I would have argued like please artists don't get too emotionally attached because go ahead and take this, you know, hour and a half or whatever it takes for you to draw this picture, but don't get too emotionally attached. And if you look at fishermen, the beautiful, the beautiful thing that they have that I usually don't have is patience and they cast and they cast and maybe they get a big one in the boat, but then they lose it or they get a big bite and they lose it. If they just were like, you know what? I'm just done being a fisherman. Like a lot of buyers did that last year. They got good bites. They, they saw the potential. They got really excited. They got their hopes up and they started counting their coins before the check cashed or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. the hard part. Counting your eggs before they hatch. That's what I meant to say. But I think the number one advice for buyers is don't get discouraged cast again and with each cast you're just going to become a stronger fisherman and the right one will come in and you'll know what to do when you start reeling it in and you'll know you know where to pull and what to do and um you know grabbing a bigger net if you need that and using the right realtor to make sure that they're doing everything to support you in that too yeah for sure. yeah that's a great point i was and what was i about to say i was for an email and i got distracted i don't know continue sorry <laughs> no yeah um i also think the relationship 
with other realtors is super important too. And I'm assuming like you were saying that you got in the house early. How did you do that, Josh? Like, did you know that agent already? Like, did you hear about it coming soon? Because I think people listening might be like, how did they get in before it was listed? Yeah. So mine is like kind of a weird story. Yes, I knew her before. So I used to work at a different brokerage and that's where we had met originally. But every Thursday, or I guess it's every other Thursday now, Grant and I go on what's called the luxury home tour in Denver. So if you have a listing that's above a certain price point, you can put it on tour. All the brokers go check it out every Thursday so that you can stay up to date with all the inventory. Uh, And I just saw her at that meeting and um, just said, hey, and said one of my buyer needs. And she just happened to have a listing coming in that neighborhood. So it was just having the relationship and just like being in the right place at the right time. And that I think as a consumer, you need to ensure that your broker has those relationships because you're shooting in the dark, if not, and good luck in a competitive situation, if that's mm-hmm. the case. Like, cause I picture myself when I have a listing, like a year ago, super competitive, almost everything's receiving multiple offers, right? I know for me, when I would receive offers, sometimes you would just receive an offer from someone who you have not talked to, you don't know anything about the buyers, you just randomly receive this offer in your inbox. And for me, the agents that I know and I develop this relationship with, I talk to, they always wanna keep tabs with me, I notice that. That's something that if your broker is fighting for you, they're wanting to always stay in communication with you, like that makes everyone feel a little more comfortable, right? Like when I have an agent who doesn't call me, I'm like, are these buyers even qualified? Like, I I don't know anything about the situation. And that is part of my job to communicate that to my seller when it comes to accepting an offer, like letting him know, I always want to talk to that lender. I always want to talk to that agent uh, so I can give them the best deal that we can get and something that's secure too. And developing that relationship with agents just helps you kind of your rapport. And at the end of the day, you sometimes can uh, learn things about different offers on the table to position your buyers in the best position you can to try and lock down that house. But I mean, it's a crazy, crazy business, just like we've been saying all day, you can't ever get too high or too low. But just know that I mean, we're firm believers, everything happens for a reason that house is out there for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you find yourself in a multiple offer situation, and you don't get it, just know there's something even better out there for you that uh, you'll find. Um, It's just again, trying to stay even keel. Yeah. Well, and you touched on something really important. If you're out there and you're a buyer and you're currently making offers, if your realtor is not gathering as much information as they can for you for pretty much any house you're interested in, they're not really doing their job. And you brought up a great point that if I'm a listing agent and someone just emails me a PDF of an offer, I'm going to be so unimpressed with that realtor immediately off the bat of like, do they even care about their client? If you have a realtor, make sure they are communicating with the other realtor. That is our jobs. We are representing our clients and negotiating. And one of the biggest ways to negotiate is to understand who your opponent is and understand who that seller is, who am I negotiating with and what's going to be important with them because that might be a difference maker of getting the house or not. So I love when I am working with a seller, I love seeing what other buyers agents do and who does it really well. And being in the industry for such a long time, I being an, an agent for 10 years, I've made so many friendships with so many realtors and that goes such a long way. And I feel like a lot of people don't talk about that, but if you have a realtor that just, you know, grabbed their license off the shelf yesterday and dusted it off and they haven't been doing it for the last few years, I would really deeply think about using them or not, because they might not know a lot of the new agents that have gotten their license in the last couple of years. And that might be a difference maker of you getting your offer accepted or not. And working in the neighborhood you're interested in. Um, I do a lot of work in East Nashville, which is like a cool neighborhood outside of Nashville. I live here. I work here, go to church here. Like I have a ton of friends that are realtors here. And that says so much when I'm representing a buyer and my friend Robbie's on the other side representing the seller. And I'm texting Robbie, like, Robbie, I will buy you wine for a year. Like I will, I will book you a massage with my favorite massage therapist. Like I know the things that are going to, you know, get him excited and it will speak so much wonders when he's got 20 offers on the table, but mine's on there and my name is on it. My reputation is on it. And he knows how much of a shark I am for my clients and knows that if we go under contract, I'm going to make sure that it's seen through to closing and I'm going to be fun to work with and reasonable and honest and trustworthy. That says a lot. And I've had many offers accepted just because of my relationships with other realtors. So, and it's, 
it sounds like for you guys, I mean, going to these home tours and being a part of these mastermind groups that you're part of and having friends that are realtors and saying like, hey, we're in this together, let's learn together. I know that that has probably for you guys also sometimes been the reason why your buyers got a house or not. Oh yeah. We've gotten contracts accepted that were not the highest price just because of our reputation with a listing agent like that is probably the biggest key. And anybody listening, vet your broker, like vet your broker. There are so like Joe Schmo could go get his real estate license with no effort whatsoever. So vet your broker. Everybody knows like, what is it? Five real estate agents. So be sure that you're, uh, interviewing properly for all of you listening out there. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And a great question to ask is how long have you been a realtor? Like when, when people interview me, I'm like, I'm telling them these things, but they don't really know the questions to ask. So how long have they been a realtor? What neighborhoods would they say that they're experts on? What, how are they involved in their association in, in their city? So like every city will have like, we've got like greater Nashville realtors or like, what's the name of the one in Denver? Denver Metro Realtor Association, yeah. DMAR. Yeah. DMAR. What events do they go to? Are they on any boards? How do they, are they involved in their community? Um, mm-hmm. You know, where does their business come from? And just like kind of understanding who they are and like their background. And you can read their reviews online. You can check out their website and stuff like that. Talking with someone who's used them before. What was it like? Were they responsive? You know, were they educated? That's all super important. Um, but even just seeing how long they've been in the business too says a lot. But we also have some realtors who have been in it for two years that I would argue are better realtors and are more up to date on our market than some people who've been doing it for 25 years. For sure. Yeah. Like it's not necessarily how long they've been in it, but how active are they right now and what kind of relationships have they grown since they've gotten their license? Yeah, yeah. big time, big time for sure. Yeah. Another thing we can talk about. So like, do you guys do a lot of escalation clauses in Denver? We shy away yeah, from that. I, I hate them. Personally, uh, at least when I'm on the selling side, I want people, like if I receive multiple of them, that's when it gets tricky. If you receive a couple of them that have like an escalation clause to the same number, uh, it gets a little scary at times because you don't want someone to feel like you're discriminating against them when they had a very, very competitive offer, right? Uh, so when I find myself in that position, I... I ask for people to just get, just give me your best and final. That's what I want. But I have also written escalation clauses for my buyers uh, and gotten the property due to it. So it's just for me, I want a good rapport with the agent on the other side of the transaction. So if I show a property to some buyers and they really want it, they have interest in it. Like they're like, I'm willing to pay this much for it. And they're like, I don't want to lose this property. It's if I have a good standing relationship and good communication with that agent, it's a way that we can communicate and see kind of what offers are in and what those offers look like. Are there any other escalation clauses on the table? Uh, For me, it it just gets tricky when there's multiple of them, but there's a time and place, right? Like I sound like, oh, well, I write them, but I don't like receiving (laughs) them, right? But like, I want to make sure the communication is so important on it just because yeah. I never want, if I'm on the listing side, someone to feel like I'm discriminating on them. And if I'm on the buyer side, like, I don't want my buyer to be like, well, we had this crazy escalation clause and we still lost it. Yeah. Like, it's just communication, making sure that, like, you are being fully honest and transparent with your clients as to what that means and with the listing agent as to what do they have in front of them. But I, I mean, there's definitely times and places for them and you do see them a lot here. Yeah, I would say we don't need to all that much because the way Grant and I like submit offers is like we have all of the data before we're really even writing an offer multiple, most times in multiple offer situations. So I would say most times we understand what, what kind of number we need to win. Um, so we try to shy away from them, but there's definitely a time and a place for yeah, it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, for those of you listening that don't know what an escalation clause is, I'll just tell you really quick. So like, let's say the listing agents listed a house and the asking price is 400,000. You might say, I'm willing to pay $450,000 for this house. I've talked to my agent and they have also advised me that that would still be a pretty good price for this house. I wouldn't be overpaying too much. I feel comfortable with that monthly payment and I can cover, if it doesn't appraise for 450, I can cover that difference. So maybe instead you're like, I'm willing to pay 450. However, 
I don't want to if I don't have to. So an yeah. escalation clause is great because it basically tells that seller, I'm willing to pay 450. So if you get an offer, I will beat it by let's say $2,000 or $5,000 or whatever that escalating factor is. I'll beat whatever offer you get up to $450,000. I won't go past that. And I have working for a lot of sellers. I've taken a lot of offers where they had an escalation clause. But what I normally do is I'll call that buyer's agent and be like, hey, it's really close. We've got two escalation clauses that say the same thing. If you can just come up to 475, we've got a deal. And they've been like, no, we're not willing to do that. Or yes, we are. Let's write it up right now. So the escalation clause just really tells that seller what you're willing to do. And then it's really up to that listing agent to kind of work those offers from there. But I have seen, I mean, like last year, I think more offers that were accepted didn't have escalation clauses. It was just like an outlandish number. So sometimes it might come down to like, what is your number? And let's just offer that number, whatever yeah. that max is. Yeah. Let's just give them that. And then you still might not get the house or maybe you do, but you're happy. And it's all down to like what you're comfortable payment wise. How much do you love the house? What are you willing to put on the line for it? And then being able to sleep at night knowing that's how much I spent on my house and I'm comfortable with it. It really does come down to it. Like we're the agents, we're not going to be buying the house, but we'll tell you what we would spend on it. And you can make that decision from there. But that way the decision is less scary and you kind of know all the factors that are going to come into play if you do get the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Mm -hmm. I've seen like it, I've seen escalation clauses like stress out sellers too, just to like depending on their like personality, right? So like you need to understand who your client is and who you're working for. And like as a buyer's agent submitting an offer, you need to understand the seller's personality as well. So it's it, it's so situational. Uh, I think it can be great in, in a lot of situations. Sometimes not so much. So it just depends. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to talk too much, but there's so much I could talk about on this topic. But before we wrap up, I would love to talk about pass-fail inspections because a lot of people see that. They're like, what's a pass-fail inspection? I'm sure you guys maybe call it something differently. You were saying um, something about like health and safety. Can you maybe describe that? What we do here in Nashville is we say we get to inspect the entire house. We get to do all of our due diligence to make sure that we're comfortable with what we're buying. And we're either going to buy it or we're not. We're not going to ask you to replace the HVAC. We're not going to ask you to fix the water that's coming into the crawl space. We're just going to buy it or not. Um, is that kind of how it is pass-fail inspection for you guys out in Denver? Or what does that look like? Yeah, pretty close. So I would say pass-fail means like as is in our market. So I always will write an inspection termination deadline in our contracts, even if people are like, I'll buy it as is. Um, well, I won't say always, but most times. And so that would be a pass-fail inspection where it's like, um, we're still going to inspect the property. We're not, you know, giving up our right to inspect, but we can still terminate based on our findings if something scary comes up. So mm -hmm. that's one factor where, you know, it could essentially be as is, and we're not going to ask for any repairs, but you could still terminate based on inspection. And then from there, yeah, another like tier, I would say below that is the health and safety clause, which is we're only going to look at major, you know, plumbing, structural, roof, mechanical stuff. And so long as that's functional and there's nothing that's like a, a like an issue at that moment, um, we're not going to nickel the dime to or nickel and dime the seller to do any repairs like that. But I, I would say like, yeah, last year, I don't know, half were like as is. Yeah, offers. I didn't see a single offer last year that didn't have some kind of wording in the additional provisions regarding the inspection. Because that's something you do to strengthen your offer in a multiple offer situation is if you feel comfortable purchasing this house with the, like a few light bulbs that need to be replaced and as long as there's nothing major to it, then if that's something you're comfortable with, then you put that in there. And when you like when you take yourself back 12 months when properties were receiving three to 20 offers on it, right? It's like you're always going to be in that competitive situation and you want to find a way, just like Josh said with the menu, what are you comfortable doing to strengthen your offer? And yeah, last year you saw so many as is. And what's important for that is, like Josh said, we always want to put that inspection termination deadline on our contract. Because even if you're like, it's fine, like I want to get this place, I'm not going to ask for anything on the inspection report. We still want to get that inspection report done. If this place has like a sewer issue, a foundational issue, something that costs potentially tens of thousands of dollars to repair, that is something you don't want to buy that property and then have like one week later have to go and spend $20,000 to repair your foundation. Yeah. Um, so like you always want to look out for your buyer's best interests and like you can, if you want to buy it as is, but we just always recommend that they still get that inspection done. Even if the place looks great, 
like you want to know what's going on sometimes that you, the normal consumer, doesn't see. So, yeah, we have great resources of inspectors and stuff. And um, like something radon is a big thing out here, which is like a mineral in the ground that we have radon issues here as well. Yeah. And I would preface all that with like Colorado. We have moving soil and then we have, you know, extreme weather changes. So it's not like we're dealing with and like it's super dry. So we're rarely ever dealing with mold, rarely ever dealing with like termites or like anything that like most markets are like concerned with. Because of our weather, I think it's a little bit of a different inspection process. And usually, like, you can see major issues more easily than I think other markets. Mm -hmm. So that's unique in the sense that, like, we really only look at, like, structural sewer line and radon and then do, like, a general inspection and make sure the house isn't falling apart. But um, a lot of those, like, underlying major issues that you run into other markets, we don't really see that often. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, inspection is, is a key term, though, just in terms of, like, understanding the, the process and how to make you your, yourself a strong buyer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I always like to tell my my clients, I'm like, everything's always negotiable. Even if you go to Walmart, you can negotiate. Did you know that? I get <laughs> discounts tried. on things. <laughs> I get discounts on things all the time. <laughs> I'm just, like, Greek and Italian and super frugal. And I'll be like, hey, this has, like, a scuff mark on it. Like, that's got to be 10%. They're like, let me go talk to my manager. They're like, yeah, just give it to her. It's fine. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you. So that's, like, something I always tell them. I'm like, we can do a pass-fail inspection. We can waive the inspection. Guess what? They are going to be more willing to work with us now that we're under contract. They started packing up their boxes. They marked the house under contract on, on MLS, and they've shown the world we are now working with buyer. And they are going to be more inclined to work with us. So what we did a lot of last year was we'd be like, and we didn't do this knowing we were going to do this. We would say, hey, we, our intention is to give it a pass if it's ready to go or fail it if it's not. But then we do the inspection. We'd be like, okay, everything for the most part is groovy doovy, but um, maybe it does need a new roof. And they really honestly, for this price point, should have replaced it probably 10 years ago. And that's kind of a deal breaker. So I would call that agent and be like, Robbie, I love you, dude. Why didn't your seller replace this roof? He's like, I know, I know. I'd be like, if you could just give us like half the cost of this roof, we've got a deal. I know we said pass or fail. And we're really trying to be a very good buyer. Everything else on this inspection, we will take care of. It's going to be expensive, but we got it. And we, you know, we'll be good to close in two weeks, but we've got to get $5,000. And I'll be like, let me go talk to him. I'll see what I can do. Odds are they're going to agree to it because they don't want to go back in the market. Because guess what happens? If they go back in that market, guess what that next buyer is going to see? A bad roof. And guess what? They might ask for even more because they're like, oh, that's probably why your first buyer backed out. I want $10,000. So it's a lot smarter for that agent just to get the deal done because it's easier for that seller. There's less risk of going back on the market and seeing what kind of offer they're going to get. Or maybe they even get a lesser price because because now they're going back in the market with their tail between their legs and they're like, what's wrong with this house? So I like to just, yeah. you know, let the audience know everything's always negotiable. That's why you do want to use agents like Josh and Grant who are sharks, who have your best interests at heart and who are going to fight to the death to get you the best deal, even if it's a seller's market. Yeah, 100%. There's so many other things we could talk about, but for the sake of keeping it, we could do this for sweet, hours. <laughs> we'll just have to do another episode later on this year, and we definitely will. Yeah, episode yeah. two, OD Group, episode two. <laughs> episode two, Epi two, season two. But yeah, um, I want to wrap us up today with the question I ask all of our teacher realtors, and you guys can answer individually or together. Um, that would be really impressive. But the question I always ask is if you can give one piece of advice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one piece of advice. To our listener, and honestly, it doesn't even need to be real estate related, but one piece of advice, something that you want to pass along, uh, maybe it's something you learned or maybe it's something you're still learning to our future listener, what would it be? Well, this one's easy because it's fresh in my mind, but learn from all your failures. Like as we were going through the scenario that I kind of touched on today, it, I had a, a horrible weekend because I had to deliver such bad news. You get on such a high where you're writing an awesome offer for some great clients on a house they love. And then you find out that you didn't win it. It's it's super high it, and then it's super low. Uh, and just dealing with those emotions is a lot, especially when you really, truly, sincerely care about like the outcome that you get for your clients. Um, it's hard, but I think that the biggest part is just understanding that I know that I can learn from my failures. And Grant and I have done that nonstop since the day we started. Like we're 27 years old, so we started when we were 20 years old, basically. And uh, I think that we found our way to success through learning through failure and just understanding yeah. that like nobody knows everything. So you might as well give it your best shot and just learn along the way. 
Um, obviously prepare as best you can, but uh, that's all you can do at the end of the day. So learn from your failures. Yeah. And I guess real quickly, I'll say just like be a good person to everyone because you never know who you're going to run into, how you're representing yourself. You always want to like almost feel like you're on the team with someone else, right? Like feel like we're on the same team here. If you want to be a good person, other agents for us, if we're good agents, we respect other agents out there. Like that'll pay off for us. And most importantly, our buyers or sellers, like that's the most important thing out of this is like, we want to represent ourselves and position ourselves in a way with other brokers around us, vendors around us that we are positioning our clients to benefit based off of the relationships that we've built because communication and relationship building is so important in any business. And if you are scheming out there or doing things that aren't necessarily ethical, people will pick up on that and you will build a reputation that you don't want to have. Uh, so it's important to just be a good person to everyone, be transparent, be honest, and uh, life will take you to good places, I believe. Yes, I totally agree with that. Both of those were such good golden nuggets. I love them both. And I totally live by those things. Wait, what's yours? We need one from you. One from me? Oh, oh, put, put you on the spot. Now I know how you guys feel. I'm like, <laughs> what, is, what is my big piece of advice? Dude, pray a lot. That's probably one for That's me. That's a good one. Um, That's a good one. Yeah, I pray about everything. Yourself. I pray for my clients and pray for every transaction, honestly. Um, yes, and surround yourself with people that you want to be like. Keeping good people in your corner, I think, is huge. And, you know, that doesn't have to be family members. Like, you can bring in new people if you don't have family members that are supporting you. But, yeah, making sure you've got, like, a good, strong village behind you and taking care of your those people, too, in your life. Yeah. yeah, That's, a that's good. just the first one I thought of. I'm going to think of a better one later, but we'll save it for episode two. Episode <laughs> two. Yeah, that's perfect. That was a good one, though. So all of you listening, if you guys are in Denver, if you're anywhere near Denver or if you have friends or family that live in Denver, definitely follow Grant and Josh. Um, I will definitely add their Instagram handles and website to this podcast. Um, you can also find them at howtobuyahouseclass.com. You can click on the Denver link and read all about them and sign up for their classes and you can just see what they're up to. But they're absolutely incredible and we're so excited to have them a part of our network. So thank you guys so much for being on the episode today. I wish I was as a consumer listening to this because this is such good knowledge. I wish I would have listened to this like 10 years ago. So it's good stuff. I, me too. Yeah. I was about to say that same thing. But yeah, thank you so much for your time and having us, Jessica. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. Um, well, you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Enjoy the snow for me. And we'll talk soon. Yeah. <laughs> we certainly will. We we'll will. send you some pictures. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sounds good. See you. Right. Right. Bye. Stay tuned for more episodes from the How to Buy a House class. You can follow us on Instagram. We're at the How to Buy a House class. You can also email us. Yes, we still use email and we would love to connect to you that way as well. You can reach us directly at hello at howtobuyahouseclass.com. And I also would love to connect with you. My Instagram handle is at Jess Lou Randolph. And we hope you have a fabulous day. Thanks for listening and God bless you.